ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Well, hello. Thank you very much indeed for downloading another uh, podcast from your friends at Books of the Year. Another one where Matt has pretended to have a crisis because a horse got sick or has got a needs a shoe or something, or there's a gymkhana for his family, or he just, you know, I don't know what it is. What is it with him? Anyway, he promises to be back for the next show, but then he promised to be back for this show too. Maybe he's just a snowflake. Anyway, uh, I just want to remind you of our uh, pick any page thing, which we're doing, which is where uh, assorted authors who come on here, uh, they pick a page from their new book and then they read it. We film it and then you get a good taster and you get to see what they look like. This is on Instagram and Twitter, Instagram slash pick any page. Uh, we've been tweeting stuff from Jeanette Winterson and Emma John and Mac Haig. And if you follow us on Twitter at Books of the Year, you'll have seen them there. Um, Brett Rudd says, uh, love the podcast. It has added many tomes to my depression-inducing stack of books beside my desk. I heard a formula. Oh, this is where I got it from. So I mentioned this to to Matt Haig. I heard a formula from Nancy Pearl um, about, uh, apparently he's got a librarian action figure. Anyway, about how many pages to give a book before deciding to finish it. You subtract your age from 100. Although don't tell Jeanette Winston this or I will get into trouble. This is from Brett Rudd, Rhymes with Spud, in San Francisco. So th- at, least there's, at least there's something, a tool, with which you can work out how many pages you're supposed to. So obviously I'm going to be reading to page um, 84, something like that. Jackie says, uh, Jackie Rhymes with Wacky, just listen to the podcast. Nice lady, this is Jeanette Winderson. I have to say, this, this email is a little bit... Revelatory. It's a little bit racy. I like what she was saying about AI, and I agree. As for the sex bots, hilarious but true. Men always find a way to adapt new inventions to something to do with sex. Her comments made me laugh. They should make them for women too. I tend to think all these sex aids are cut. I can't believe I'm reading this out. Reading an email out about sex aids. Jackie, you should have thought maybe before you contributed everything. I tend to think all these sex aids are cold, heartless things, which must make people feel lonely. A real human being is much better and much healthier. Is that right? However, if it depends who you're talking about, I would imagine some are worse and are less healthy. Anyway, however, if they can invent a male one, which you could order with various specifications, well, good on everyone for doing so. Be expensive, though, and if it can't give you a cuddle, it's not for me. 
You should have stopped in the first paragraph, Jackie. On the positive side, oh, okay. On the positive side, a man who doesn't moan, come home smelling of beer, moan about every damn thing, struggles to get up in the first place occasionally, but worst of all, cannot keep his mouth shut, has to be a good thing. A little bit of history, I think, coming out there with Jackie's email. Um, if you'd like to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. You can tweet us at Books of the Year and you can email us at booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Meantime, look, we've got an author. So this is your uh, favourite books podcast, hopefully. Well, it's just one of them, and it's Books of the Year. And I'm delighted to say that we're about to do our first books podcast about Egyptology. Chris Naunton is here. I'm just checking I've got your title right, Chris, apart from being the author. I'm saying you're an Egyptologist. Correct. I'm saying you're a writer. Yes. And I'm saying you're the president of the International Association of Egyptologists. At the moment, yes, I am, yeah. Is that uh, up, up for grabs? Is it? Is it? Is that? Um, so it's a position which has a kind of time limited term, and I'm coming to the end of it um, later this year. So I have been that since 2015. Um, How fantastic! It just makes you sound really, really important. Like is president like, of the Intergalactic Federation. Yeah, is there a uniform that goes with the, <laughs> the, the, the International Association of Egyptologists? You know, in my last hundred days, I'll do what I can. But so far, no, no. So the, so the book is searching. F- well, it's interesting because the, the the title appears to be "Lost Tombs of Egypt," but mm. then in small letters, just above, just <laughs> so he's got Chris Norton in big letters. Yeah, and it's all very kind of sandy and blocky. Yeah. Uh, on the front, then searching for the in smaller letters, yeah. it could say uh, "Lost Soul Rebels." Was that Texas Midnight Runners? Anyway, it doesn't say that. It says yes. "Lost Tombs of Egypt," which is what you'd expect from the president of the International Association <laughs> of Egyptologists. Um, how do you? Just just a sort of some basic introduction stuff. How do you get to be an Egyptologist? Because it is essentially, I think in most minds, it's such a romantic and fabulous thing to be. How? What was your path to it? Um, so it, it involves a lot of university study and actually involves, a lot of that involves um, being disabused of a lot of your notions of kind of how romantic uh, it is. Um, but you go away, you learn, um, for most of us, you, you learn a bit about archaeology, art history, literature, religion. Um, a lot of us learn to read the Egyptian language, hieroglyphs, or various other different scripts. Um, and then all of us um, who, who get those qualifications, some of us go on to do more qualifications. I did a PhD. Mo- most people who end up working in the field do. Um, and and then it's it's just a fiercely competitive um, world where there are not nearly as many jobs as there are qualified people. So you spend a lot of your time doing unpaid work, and the classic things you need to do, if you can, are to get yourself some some writing experience, some stuff published. You need to establish yourself as a kind of serious player academically. You need to get yourself to Egypt as much as you can. Work on a, on a dig, maybe, if you can. Maybe get some museum experience, get some teaching experience. Um, you know, and once you get yourself known, you apply for every job going. And eventually, you know, fingers crossed, something comes your way. And I was, I was one of the people who was in the right place at the right time for one of those. In terms of the nitty-gritty and getting the sand under your fingernails uh, of this book, which is really, really splendid and, uh, a, a, and a terrific read, obviously, you're searching for the lost tombs of Egypt. That is the title that you have. Mm-hmm. A lot of people's reaction will be, really? Still? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that was really, that was really my starting point. Um, I, I, got, um, I got a question online a few years ago from somebody, which is a question actually that I've had a, an awful lot over the years. Is there anything left to find in Egypt? And, you know, there's so much 
excavation has been done and so many things have been found and so many people are so interested in in ancient Egypt surely we've done all the digging there is to do and turned over every last stone and every last grain of sand There's, there can't possibly be anything left and the truth is that archaeology is going on all the time in Egypt and new things are being found all the time and so my answer to this guy was well yes there definitely is the the real question I suppose you want you want to ask is um is there going to be anything really spectacular to find? And as I was thinking about this, I realised quite quickly that I'd, I'd, over the years I'd been gathering together a, a half a dozen or so stories of really spectacular things that we know must have existed that have never been found and, you know, w- without it being easy to explain why. Okay, so who's on the list or what is on the list? So on the list, and I had these more or less straight away, um, Imhotep, not the Hollywood bad guy, but the, the guy from whom the Hollywood bad guy takes his name. Um, a real person in the Third Dynasty uh, who later became revered as a, a kind of folk hero originally and then a god. Um, Amenhotep I, the founder of, uh, arguably the founder of the 18th Dynasty New Kingdom. Um, Akhenaten, the great heretic pharaoh. His wife, the celebrated beauty Nefertiti. Um, a guy called Harry Hor, who was kind of a priest king responsible for reburying lots of New Kingdom pharaohs who... Um, some people have suggested may, in reburying them, have nabbed a bit of the treasure for himself. Um, almost um, all of the kings of most of the first millennium BC, which is a kind of dark all age. All these people are missing. Their all tombs missing are in missing. The record. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And do we do we know? Well, I was going to say, do we know they, that they still exist? You know, is it worth looking for? Might they just have been plundered and destroyed? Is and, and possible. It is possible that through human action or um, you know environmental action, some of these things have been lost. But there's so much that's still being found. And what's really staggering, I think, I still find this staggering, is that there are not only places in Egypt where you can still put a spade in the ground and find things, but there are even parts of the most famous, celebrated, and rich archaeological sites that have never been excavated properly before. So you know, can you believe that there are parts of the Valley of the Kings that have never been dug? You know, why would th- why would that be? Just circumstance, really. I mean, um, Howard Carter, famously the discoverer of the tomb of Tutankhamun, was at the point of giving up, and certainly his patron uh, was trying to persuade him that you know you're not going to find anything now. Um, and other people had suggested that you know it's done now. We know, there isn't there isn't going to be anything more to find. And Carter had decided that not only did he think there was more to find, but in order to prove it, he was going he was going to do the last bits of clearance. He was going to dig everything, um, and then you know really we, we really could say yeah okay it's finished. Um, and before he got to do that, he found Tutankhamun. That tied him up pretty much for the rest of his life. Um, and there was very little excavation then for decades in the valley. And that work that he started of clearing it has never been has just never been finished. How much of what we're talking about and what you put in the book is essentially down to the fact of the this uh, Egyptian passionate belief in the afterlife and not just that we or parts of us lived on, but actually you needed a lot of gold and accoutrements around your around your burial site. You know, would we still be having this conversation if it wasn't for that. No, no, you're absolutely right. That, that is it. And I think, it's, I think it's impossible for us to overstate how important um, the afterlife was and providing for it for the Egyptians. Um, we, we have such a fundamentally different set of beliefs around what happens to us after death. 
um, for, for the Egyptians, there was no other way. There were, you know, there was no other sort of conception or belief in anything other than an afterlife and the idea that you've got to do everything you possibly can to get there. So the idea that you could, you know, it was kind of a choice. I've got, you know, I've got so much wealth. Um, what do we do? Maybe we'll have a car. Maybe we'll have a holiday. You know, we'll have a nicer house. We'll make sure that we make a bit of a provision for the afterlife. But, you know, we've got to get things in balance. Actually, there would have been a bit of that. But, you know, the, the idea of investing in the afterlife was really so crucially important. It would have been your big project. And certainly it was, it was every pharaoh's big project from the moment they came to the throne was to ensure a tomb and, and that everything they needed to go in it, you know, w- was going to be created for them. Um, I, I have the sense that the Egyptians... It, not only in tomb building and in providing for the for the afterlife, um, but in say temple building as well, which is the prerogative of, of the king. But you know, another thing to invest in. I have the sense that they really felt compelled not to cut any corners at all. You, you kind of see that on temple walls when, or in tomb walls, where every last patch of wall is covered with something, a, a hieroglyphic sign, image of a god some sort of decorative band, whatever it is. But it's really as though they were almost expecting a god to come down and say, you missed a bit. Well, you know, what about that bit? Can you not, can you not write something nice about me in that bit of wall? Um, you know, it's almost as though if they didn't do absolutely everything, then they were going to be for it. The, um, <clears throat> one of the, I, I love all the detail in the book, and there's a, you, there's a photo of, uh, I think it's a black and white photograph of an undisturbed burial chamber and there's a a, I think there's a pair of sandals uh, and some tiny two models and the statue of the owner and it this is thousands of years old but it looks as though it has just been left yesterday yeah and presumably that hasn't been touched has it that's absolutely right until it was found in I think in that case about 2007 it had not been touched since sometime around let's say 201900 BC, something like that. So uh, altogether about 4,000 years. Those I think it's the sandals almost yeah. more than the, than the small intricate models. I'm sure the intricate models are worth a whole lot more than the sandals because it looks just like uh, someone who's been on holiday and it's the sunbed and they've just left their sandals yeah. there. That's what it, you know, yeah. that's what it looks yeah. like. I, th- I think for me, um, and I try to talk about this in the book, um, it's, not just about finding the, it's not just about finding a tomb. You know, finding any tomb is wonderful. Finding grave goods is wonderful. Having grave goods is wonderful. But um, there's something about the whole, the unity of these things and the placement of the objects, which calls to mind, and I, I think I use this example in the book, a kind of ancient Egyptian Mary Celeste, you know, the ship that was left with all the stuff just in place and people came across it. There was nobody there, but it, it was really literally as though everybody had just jumped off the ship two minutes beforehand. And that sense of things being exactly as you say, in exactly in place, where they were thousands of years ago, shrinks that gap in time down to nothing. And it, it is as though if you'd just arrived five minutes earlier, you'd have, you'd have caught the guy who put the sandals there and could have sort of said to him, you know, okay, can you tell me about what it's like in the Middle Kingdom? You know, you, you just feel that closeness. And um, Egypt, is, Egypt is, has, has given us so, so much kind of richness of this this kind, I think we're very lucky as Egyptologists. Yeah. It's the domestic. I kind of expected a fabulousness. It was just, it was so humble, these, yeah. the pair of sandals. And obviously sandal design hasn't changed much. Yeah. In <laughs> thousand right. years, you yeah. could probably wear them. 
Matt Williams, who normally sits in this chair, has come up with some excuse. He's got some horsey business to attend to. I don't know what it is. But he sent me some stuff, okay? So this is yeah. from him. Uh, the, he, uh, so Matt says, the Egyptian civilization still holds such public fascination and, let's face it, grants for research are more readily available for Egypt than Aztec or other ancient civilizations. Mm. Is the reason behind that the pyramids? Is the fatal flaw of these pyramids that they are a neon sign to robbers indicating here be treasure? So there's... so. There's, there's two things, really, that the pyramids are the problem, but it also the problems are the reason that we're having this conversation. Um, yes. Um, I mean, the pyramids ensured that particularly the Great Pyramid, particularly Giza and particularly the Great Pyramid, ensured that Egypt was kind of in the minds of people from the time, not just Egyptians, but people from the wider world, from the time they were built, roundabout, in the case of the Great Pyramid, 2700 B.C., so, you know, getting on for 5,000 years ago, Egypt, ancient Egypt, the pyramids, the people that built them have never left the world's conscious uh, conscience in, in all that time. Um, and no other aspect of ancient Egyptian civilization has been that enduring. You know, I, I would say now if you went onto the street and sort of showed people a series of kind of images taken from ancient Egypt the ones people are most likely to recognize or, or say Egypt in response to would be a pyramid and probably the death mask of Tutankhamun. Mm. But Tutankhamun was completely forgotten. Um, the person and, you know, the death mask, all that was totally unknown for centuries, for thousands of years. The pyramids, not so. So I think that is right. I th you know, I think that they are the great symbol and they have been for that that huge, vast expanse of time. Um and I think Matt's absolutely right. Also, though, that uh, from, I mean, from the very earliest time, from the very beginning of Egyptians burying their dead, um, from the very beginning of that practice, um, there were problems with robberies and a need to secure, pr provide some kind of means of securing the burial to ensure that the the body and the grave goods and everything could be could be kept together and survive. So it, it is a little bit curious that they didn't until a certain point in history, um, think of trying to hide the tombs a bit better than they did. Um, really, up until uh, the New Kingdom, when, when the tombs themselves were fully separated from the other buildings that go with tombs. So there's always, as part of a tomb, there's always a place where you can leave offerings to the deceased individual's spirit from the very beginning. Um, it's only in the, in the New Kingdom, a thousand or so years after the beginning of the First Dynasty, um, the Egyptians have this idea of, of, um, of separating the, the, the cult place, the place where you leave the offerings and the place where you put the body. In other words, hiding it away in the mountains. Um, and the, the pyramids being the greatest statement the Egyptians would ever make of an individual's power and might, but also being, yeah, whacking great marker that says here be the body uh, <clears throat> so, and then Matt's second point or third or fourth whatever it is I found uh, the writing about the history of the robberies fascinating they were happening even while the pharaohs were still around Tutankhamun's tomb was unusual as Howard Carter really was the first to disturb it since it had been sealed and Matt says um, where should these antiquities be kept should we even be disturbing them also, I found Imhotep fascinating, the man who became a god. So I want to ask you about Imhotep uh, in just a moment. But 
It's an interesting point. If something fabulous is discovered, well, let's incorporate all this into Imhotep. If you on your next expedition strike gold, literally, and you do find the grave of Imhotep, is that thinking has changed so much since 1905 and the times of Howard Carter. Would you immediately say Egypt and Egyptians over to you? This is obviously your decision. And would you hope that everything kind of stays where it is and is preserved? Uh, well, um, I mean, since 1983, um, when the Egyptians passed a, a particular form of their antiquities law, um, the removal of any archaeological material from Egypt has been completely prohibited. So nothing's left Egypt for, for a long time. And in fact, it's been controlled for much, much longer than that. Um, I think it's important to say that there was a time, you know, a couple of centuries in the past, perhaps, when there was no such there was no such regulation and things just left willy nilly. Mm -hmm. um, there's a more sort of specific point, though, about whether or not the items that were placed inside a tomb with a deceased individual, as in the case of the tomb of Tutankhamun, and with every intention of their remaining in there forever, whether they should stay in there or, or not. I think, I think, you know, in, in practical terms, it, it would be completely impossible to discover anything like that and then assume that those things could be kept secure in that place. So in the case of the tomb of Tutankhamun, even if that tomb were discovered now, or even if we found the tomb of Imhotep and it, you know, if it was found with similar sort of treasures now, um, even with all the technology we have and, you know, as you rightly point out, a different set of attitudes towards mm -hmm. this kind of thing, um, there's no way that any, any kind of portable objects could be kept anywhere other than somewhere secure, and that would be not in the same place as the archaeological site. So I think those things have got to move. Um, having said that, I think it's a little bit sad myself that... Um, although all of the objects from the tomb of Tutankhamun are um, uh, in Cairo, in Egypt, in Cairo, and, unless they're travelling, as some of them are now, um, they are still a very long way from the tomb. And, um, you know, in a kind of hypothetical world in which everything was completely perfect, there'd be a, a, a museum much closer to the original burial place where the tomb itself in some way was, was kind of um, recreated so that you would have something of... Um, something more of the idea of that placement we were talking about earlier because separated into dozens and hundreds of museum cases 500 miles away you don't get that sense anymore of, of, of a tomb um, but I think you know realistically the security of the of the objects sure. is impossible to get around um, Imhotep then how do you how are you saying Imhotep Imhotep so we, so we, yeah. so yeah. we pronounce the H so Matt's mentioned it and, and, and I'd written him down in terms of popular culture, yeah. there is something about Imhotep who was not a king, mm -hmm. but was, I've written down, inventor, is that right? Anyway, and he became a god. So maybe you could explain just some of the mystery and majesty of, of Egypt by telling us about Imhotep. Sure. Well, he, I think you're right, actually. You hit on a very important theme there, which is that he... He, he's not. He's non-royal. He's the only. He's the only individual in the book who's who doesn't, in some way, if they're not even if they're not pharaoh, they're in some way sort of close and connected and part of the royal family. Um, Imhotep is. Uh, we know. We know not a great deal about Imhotep from his lifetime. Um, Ninety-five percent of what we know about him comes from much later, from this sort of legend. Um, but we know enough from the, the period of his life to say that he definitely was a real person. He's not just a fictional character. Um, and in particular, people visited his cult place 
in the area of the capital city of Memphis looking for healing. So if you're suffering from, from anything, it is Imhotep that you have to go to. And you might just say a prayer. Wherever you are in Egypt, you might, you might just appeal to him that way. But the best way to, to be healed by the God is to go to the place where he is thought to dwell and make an offering. Um, and this ties us back into our story of the search for the tomb because um, in the 1950s and then into the 60s, um, excavations were uncovering huge quantities of offerings of this kind being made to a God of healing, Imhotep Asclepius. Um, in the area of a whole load of enormous tombs of the time of Imhotep's lifetime. A little bit as though, even though we're talking about sort of 2,000 years later, those ancient Egyptians believed, rightly or wrongly, that that is where his tomb was and that's where the body of the real Imhotep was. Um, and it's this idea that a particular English um, archaeologist, um, Walter Brian Emery, picks up on and starts furiously digging in the 1960s he never found that tomb, and he never finished excavating that area. Um, so the possibility remains that, you know, it's out there. could you're, be found. You're going to go back and look for it? Oh, well, quite like to, yeah. yeah. Well, well, so what do you do next, Chris? Because you, you said that, you know, if you're an Egyptologist, get out to Egypt. So you obviously have to mix things around. You have to be here and, uh, and, uh, and so on. But when do, you, when do you go back? And having written a book about lost tombs, what will you be looking for? Um, well, I, this has been a, a sort of library-based research project. Um, I'm, I'm in Egypt quite frequently. I'm not involved with uh, any excavation projects at the moment. This may be something that's in my, in my future. Mm -hmm. um, that means it is. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it, it's really crucial to get to Egypt because however much sort of literature there is around and accessible and however many great museum collections and things there are, overwhelmingly the vast majority of stuff is still in Egypt. And to really understand the kind of landscape and the pe people and the culture, the environment, you've really got to get there. Um, it, it's interesting, you, you know, you mentioned Imhotep in particular. M my, my bet would be that his tomb is as likely as any of the others to still be there and still be in good condition um, because that part of the necropolis at North Saqqara is still sort of virgin soil much of it for for archaeologists so well maybe your book will inspire young archaeologists and young egyptologists to get involved into uh, that would be great and and to carry on uh, your work chris norton's book is searching for the lost tubes of egypt chris thank you very much indeed thank you uh, my thanks to chris norton egyptologist writer president of the international association of egyptologists uh, fascinating subject, fascinating guy, uh, in search of the lost tombs of Egypt is out now. Uh, thanks to Chris. And if you'd like to get in touch and let us know what you think of the podcast, as long as it, you're praising us because we don't want to be nagged. Thanks very much. We get enough of that elsewhere. So if you, uh, you can leave us a review on iTunes. That would be a fantastic thing. Uh, and if you want to get in touch and talk about the books that are exciting in your life, booksoftheyear at yahoo.com, and you can tweet us at Books of the Year. Next time, Matt might even be here, but I wouldn't promise anything. At Bombas, we make socks, underwear, and T-shirts that feel good and do good. They feel good because they're designed with the softest materials and comfort innovations. They do good because for every item you purchase, we donate another item to someone who needs it. So far, we at Bombas have donated over 75 million items, and your purchases add to that impact. 
Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash ACAST and use code ACAST at checkout. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.